Hello and welcome to the VSUP podcast, the audio-only virtualization show with more jokes than a Crimean referendum. Joining us for episode 44 is a special guest who's passionate about storage, though I suppose you could say these days his intentions were pure. It's Vaughan Stewart. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's my privilege. This is going to be fun. That's what we aim for usually, so that's a good uh, good way to start it, I guess. Yeah, usually fun only. Well, it, it beats, second. It, right, it beats the alternative, which is the only podcast that you're guaranteed to fall asleep before you hit the halfway point. <laughs> I'm sure we had a few of those too, as well. Though, but. Yeah, we had quite. A, we had a few boring ones for a while there until we shook things up, but we're better now, I think. Yeah, but we got past the awkward third album stage. So, <laughs> <laughs> Chris started getting into like uh, like. Um, existentialism and like <laughs> grew a big mustache it was it was a mess <laughs> he'd only record if there was a yogi in the room we were doing a lot of OT in those days so but he's, but he's back now yeah. he's back and he's clean which is a good sign <laughs> yeah it's, it's strictly gin and tonic and martinis all the way now so. well that's the way to go Absolutely, absolutely. So, guys, what's new? Uh, here, still doing the migration stuff we talked about last time. But, uh... right, so, yeah, I do, I'm doing some, I just finished a migration myself of a more physical nature of uh, actually just finished uh, clearing out an old house. Uh, we finally had to give back. Um, so I've been driving my, my mother-in-law's station wagon, which is a slightly, slightly faster than continental drift, but not a lot. Uh, so yeah, I've been shifting things and found a slight, the only poisonous spider you can get in the UK in my garage, which was uh, interesting, which um, I wasn't quite expecting to see. But uh, I made it through in one piece. I didn't scream too much like a girl, um, and uh, yeah, ready, ready for recording. Well, and you don't get to just drop poisonous spider and then, and then just skirt it under the rug real quick. What kind of spider was this? Uh, it's actually a spider called a false widow. They're they're extreme. They're, they're not particularly poisonous. They're probably about as um, nasty, nasty as like a wasp sting or something like that, but it's the only ones in the UK that are vaguely poisonous. Uh, false widow, so it's not quite like I know in the states there's this black widow spider. It doesn't have it, like this red fiddler on its back. It look, it looks, it looks very much like a black widow. That's why I think a false. It, you know, it's, it's black and shiny, and it's got this. It's the same shape, and it does have a marking, but it's a white marking rather than a red one. Um, and Depending on which newspaper you read, you know, some of them, there's plagues of them that are about to eat our babies, and other of them just realize that it's a spider. You might get bitten. If you're allergic to spider bites, yeah, then you're going to be in trouble, but otherwise, you should just man up a bit. Yeah. Nothing like finding out whether you need an EpiPen or not when you go into anaphylactic shock. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's one way to find out whether you're allergic to them, but I didn't feel like uh, provoking it too much. So uh, uh, I, I reached an arrangement with it. Uh, it kept to one side of the garage, and I stayed to the other. Nice peace. <laughs> don't don't even get me started on spiders. Oh. Yeah, it didn't try to like annex one of the corner and do some like dodgy voting or anything. So, we're, we're... <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so basically, you named it Puthit. <laughs> it said it was protecting some interests of some uh, spider-speaking dust bunnies, um, but. Uh, yeah, you know, I wasn't having any of that. Uh, and uh, Christian, you? Anything new with you at the moment? Uh, well, it's it's been a hectic week. Uh, we can get into the work stuff, uh, I guess, later on, because uh, the most interesting thing was basically having to ride a bus for eight hours Ooh. from Friday night to Saturday morning, which wasn't quite in my plans. That's that's a fairly epic bus ride. Trust me, there was nothing epic about it. <laughs> so, so what? Let's say was 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 that due to uh, planes, trains, and automobiles failing, or? Yeah, well, I, I was supposed to go. Uh, I, I was in Oslo on Friday for an internal event for at my company, and then was supposed to fly back uh, Friday evening, basically. Um, so we got airborne, and this is this is a fifty-minute flight. I mean from Oslo to Bergen. It's it's less than an hour. And uh, half half an hour or so out in the, uh, into the flight, the uh, captain comes on and says, uh, well, sorry, we're about to land, but we're landing in Stavanger, not in Bergen. 
because of the weather in Bergen. Uh, and you'll get more details once we land. And basically the details were, there are three buses outside, get seated. That's the detail. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so then we spent eight hours driving to get to Bergen, which is usually a five-hour trip or something, four or five-hour trip. But some of the ferries weren't going because of the weather, uh, so we had to divert and do a different route and take some other ferries, and then we had to wait for a few of them since this was in the middle of the night. So eight hours later, I was back in the airport in Bergen to drive home. And the fun part about that is the, the, the bus actually went past my house but didn't want to let me off because we have this elderly gentleman on board who was supposed to be on a flight to uh, Spain or something, and the flight was already uh, boarded, and everyone was just waiting for him who's come with the bus. Mm. Wow. Well, at least they set you up somehow. I mean, I've, I've seen some worse situations where there's no bus, and hey, find a way to get home. Oh, uh, well... They could have put me in a hotel or taken the first flight from Stavanger to Bergen the next morning, and I would have been at home at pretty much the same time. Minus the epic, bogus, whatever you want, eight-hour bus trip, which... <laughs> oh. That's a good time to, you know, catch up on reading, podcasts, sleep. Yeah, well, I couldn't sleep for some reason, so usually I sleep through anything, on anything, but not this time, so... That actually that reminds me of of an eight to twelve eight to ten hour bus ride I was on once where actually I actually lost consciousness and everyone around me was vomiting. But we'll save that for another episode. <laughs> how, how did you manage to forget that in the first place? <laughs> yeah, all these crazy things happen. Yeah, well, you were unconscious at the time. That kind of explains it, I guess. But bus yeah. trips are not for the faint-hearted. No. No. So what's what we got next here? Let's talk to Vaughn a little bit. Hey, Vaughn, got anything new going on? Or uh... well, I haven't moved. I haven't moved any in-laws out. I haven't had any challenges with spiders. That's a uh, very like Lord of the Rings esque, I guess. <laughs> 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 and and uh, I'm not sure an eight-hour bus trip has ever been an element in my life. That sounds like torture, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, you know, it's been it's been a fantastic past six months. Um, just around six months ago is when I left NetApp to join Pure Storage. And the first five months, I, I basically put about 100,000 air miles on, uh, touring the globe, touching base with partners uh, and customers who, frankly, wanted to know why I made a change. Um, that was a lot of legwork and a lot of uh, humping suitcases around, but it was fantastic. And so the course of the last month, I've been back in headquarters and we've we've gone through a couple of, of uh, great weeks uh, first was we had our sales kickoff we've closed our year and I don't know if you guys saw the post that our CEO Scott Dietzen put up but a fantastic year right we shipped our thousandth array we um, closed with 700% year-over-year revenue growth you know 100% growth sequentially you know third quarter to fourth quarter um, and for some of you who maybe I'm going too fast don't understand what we do is you know, we're pure storage, and we provide an all-flash-based storage array for the price point of disk. That's the that's the pitch. Um, but so so kickoff was great. I love the energy. I love the passion and the culture at Pure Storage. It's I it's saw nice to be. about he shaved his head or something like that. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> if I don't know if you guys have ever had an opportunity to work for a vendor, but um, you know, I was fortunate enough to join NetApp at a very early stage. I was there 13 years and, and go through lots of the. Uh, the elements of growth, and one of the things that I, I had been missing for a while was the passion and the focus that you can have when you join um, a small company. And so, as the year was starting to wind down, and they're doing forecasts and planning, um, Dietz made a bet with um, the, uh, our president of sales, Dave Hatfield, around where the revenue would end up. And um, he basically said, if the stretch goal could be accomplished, he would shave his head and. Um, Ended up, Dietz and Hat both shaved their head, and along with a, a whole plethora of other Puritans. So it was, <laughs> it was a good event. Do you, but do you still have a full head of hair? Yes, um, they weren't willing to pony up what it's going to cost to shave this mop. <laughs> I you can tell, tell us. <laughs> I haven't had hair in twelve years. I would, I would love to shave my head, for real. 
Right. Yeah. See, the, the, <laughs> I, look, some guys can rock that look. I, I don't know that that's that's my calling. More power to anyone who can. <laughs> so yeah. So then, besides that, so we had our kickoff. That was great. And then we went through um, a bunch of a bunch of work of late. You know, there's um, some vet, um, some analysts that are starting to put together. Um, some reports in terms of market assessments on the all-flash market space that I think we're going to start seeing here in the next couple of months. And so um, I'm not trying to tip anybody's hat or, or, or let any cats out of the bag, but this should be a, be a pretty good time to be in the storage industry. There's a ton of innovation going on. Uh, all-flash is just one of, one of the many elements. Um, for example, this past week that just went by, right? VMware released vSAN. Again, lots of innovation in the space. What, what do you think has been the primary sort of underlying driver? So that you know, a lot of these technological shifts, uh, that there's something at the heart of it. That you know, um, whether it's um, the reduced cost of the silicon to do solid, you know large amounts of solid state storage, whereas previously it was you know, prohibitively expensive, um, or whether it's the power, um, you know, increased compute power. You know, uh, for, for years, data domain kept on getting faster, and the only reason it got faster wasn't because their code got any better necessarily. It was just that they were putting quicker CPUs in it. That we've now we seem to plateaued on CPU speed for a little bit, so people have had to think think slightly differently. Um, but do you think there's been any sort of single uh, driving force behind some of the the new storage that's hitting the market? Well, yeah, for, from a storage perspective, you know, what you got to do is unwind the clock about. 10 years, maybe 15, and, and look back to understand that historically speaking, you know, there was a direct alignment between CPU uh, and storage resources, right? It was one-to-one. -one. It was a physical server, and it was something that you could easily gauge, monitor, and track, and who cares where the storage was? It could have been in a SAN. It could have been, you know, direct attached. It, it really kind of didn't matter, um, but... The, the early adopters, I think, of or the I would say the early data centers who started to understand that there'd be a shift in the way that data was accessed was the web service providers. You quickly understood that when you went from a one-to-one compute to storage mapping to a many uh, servers to one storage device, you could bury it with I/O requests. And so, you know, 15 years ago, you know, the Googles and and whatnot all spun off on, you know, abandoning SAN architectures and start using DAS architectures. Well, you know, here we come. Five, six, seven, eight years ago, through virtualization, and all of a sudden we have compute clusters. You know, very much like a web server farm. You know, many, uh, many servers with lots of CPU and I/O trying to you know hammer on some shared storage platform. And frankly, the shared storage platform's architecture um, hasn't been able to keep up. And and the the reason for that is that there's always a, a mixed element between spinning disk and and solid state caches. And even though the cache ratios in terms of cash to disk keep increasing every year it just takes a couple more vms or a little bit larger workload and you're blown through the cash again and, and when you have to go back to 20 millisecond latency on spinning disk it, it's just not working and so um flash is a a driver in the market and you see innovation whether people are wanting to put you know a caching tier up in the host say a la paranix data or um Someone wants to, to, to do a hybrid array but not make it on the SAN and use servers a la vSAN. Um, or, or you take some IP like we have and say, you know what, it's all flash and we're going to take care of the economics by driving out the data capacity through five types of data reduction technologies. Um, you know, that's what we do that's unique and that's why our model looks a little bit more like a classic storage array, but it's all flash. And so when you have a cache miss, guess what? It's still served in sub one millisecond time because it's coming from SSD. So there is a cache in 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 the pure storage array. Yeah, there's you know every 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 array has a, has a system cache where you know it it, uh, it operates in and, and recent hits um, you know data hits are sitting in cache. But um, yes, so so from a, from a classic storage perspective, there's a cache. There is no tiering. There's no different tiers of flash. Um, I don't know if you guys have followed um, a construct called Little's Law. Yeah, which sure. is, yeah, which is basically um, a mathematical formula that helps you understand how queuing theory works, and, and um, basically says the compo slowest component in a system will slow down the entire system. And this, this is used to predict performance in terms of network technologies, compute um, algorithms, as well as storage devices. And so, basically, what you're looking at is, you know, an average number of IOs that are in a system at a given time. Uh, you're also looking at what the average wait time it takes to traverse the system. And then the last element is what's called the probability distribution of I.O. as it traverses the system. And you would think of this in terms of like cache hit ratios. 
So, you know, the classic model of, of a storage array where you've got disk in some form of system cache or, or flash tier is really no different than if I have cache on the host or if I have cache and move the disk, you know, on quote unquote the, the, the CPU bus. I still have some form of hybrid mechanism where I'm using flash for caching and disk for um, capacity or, or actually the actual persistent tier. And basically what Little Law's, Little's Law says is even at a 90% cache hit ratio with a very modest Q depth of like 16 and an IO size of 4K, you know, an all flash array is still going to give about six times the performance of any of those other architectures. Uh, and, so and, yeah, talking go ahead. About, about Little's Law, then the, um, <clears throat> the HBA or the hypervisor itself is also included in this. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah we, um, we actually have been um, about to put out a blog post talking about uh, the best type of virtual disk to use with VMware when you're on all flash um, because the settings inside the hypervisor that are related to storage sometimes surprise people uh, and actually uh, degrade their performance. So, for example, probably as you guys know, you know, going from one virtual SCSI adapter up to three can can provide you about an 8x fold in I/O performance on a virtual machine. What you may not know is that if you actually go from a thin provision virtual disk to an eager zero thick virtual disk from a storage device that provides uh, data reduction technologies like you know like us at Pure Storage, but others in the market. Again, I'll go back to my history, like you know at NetApp when we had deduplication. Um, the, the capacity on the storage array, there's no difference. Thin or thick doesn't matter. But in eager zero thick, you get faster data migrations in terms of leveraging the VAI uh, X copy or copy offload mechanisms. You actually even get faster I/O performance because you eliminate the needs for VMFS to ac- allocate more blocks of storage and eliminate the need for the guest operating system to zero out those blocks before a write can occur. So what so, about raw devices? Would those also be recommended? Physical oh, raw, raw devices. Yeah, raw devices are fine, uh, and raw devices um, uh, <clears throat> at the from a host perspective are always considered thick. So those those work well. You know, the the element with raw devices is usually there's some requirement for a raw device because something's not supported as a virtual disk. And so my elem- my recommendation is is as long as as your application is supported and your tools function with virtual disks, that probably is what you should use for the majority of your data set. Now. You know, there's never a blanket statement. There's always going to be use cases that require raw devices. And how is your compression in, in um, in dedupe, or it's just compression, right? It's not no. It's actually, so we actually have five forms. Um, four of them are inline. So what we do is there's inline data deduplication, which has a um, variable block size, but it goes down to 512 byte granularity. That means we can, we can dedupe in data sets that you normally couldn't find with like a 4K block. Yeah, that, that is, that's, I was going to say, that's, I mean, the smallest that data domain does is 4K, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, kind of the industry as a whole does 4K. So and I believe you know, data domain is variable length, though. Yeah, it's variable length, but the small, the smallest block it can still do is, is 4K. Yeah, correct. Um, yeah, and, and that 512K, that 512K really helps you with things like Oracle databases where the first part of the header is actually a unique global identifier and you can't, you know, dedupe it on, on a on a four K boundary, but you can on a five twelve. Or when you have misaligned partitions within your virtual machines, right? There's a lot of areas where a four K block just can't provide you storage savings, but a five twelve byte can. Um, going from the data deduplication space, the second form of data reduction that again that's inline is compression, and it's a it's a lightweight. Um, compression focused on uh, reducing the data footprint, but also ensuring performance. So it's LZ0 based, um, or LZ based, I should say. Um, so those two are in line and work together. The third and fourth elements are might be a little unique or unfamiliar to your ears. Uh, again, they're also in line as well, but they're 8-bit um, pattern removal and 8-bit zero removal. Now, the difference between these two technologies and just deduplication is deduplication will actually look at the writes that are coming into the system, we'll identify them through a lightweight fingerprinting mechanism, and then we'll actually go validate that data all the way down on SSD to make sure that the, the data is actually identical, and if so, we'll update the metadata and we'll drop the data. So if on, this is inline, everything with this is happening in the actual running cache of the, of the array? 
It's specifically happening in the NVRAM. So like a lot of storage arrays, we acknowledge writes from hosts out of NVRAM. So NVRAM is battery backed up and persistent. And then NVRAM buys you a little bit of time to do things like data reduction technologies before you actually flush NVRAM down to the solid state drives. So it's it's sharing the NVRAM with the active I.O. Uh, of the VMs as well, right? Yeah, so NVRAM is where you acknowledge all, all writes, um, and you do things like your checksumming and your validation of the data, as well as your dedupe. The, real quick, just finish off the pattern removal and the zero removal are 8-bit processes, and what those are doing is saying within the NVRAM itself, I've got redundancy, and so it's already doing deduplication within the NVRAM without looking at what already what's on, on the, what exists already on SSD. And there may be something that exists, and it may all just collapse down on top of that, but, um, so those are four that are in line. The last one was a, is a fifth, is a deeper form of compression, um, a patent-pending Huffman coding-based uh, algorithm that we use that, as you guys know, SSDs re, um, specifically erase and write to uh, to flash differently than, than data is written to disk. Um, <clears throat> and to make... Uh, just for your listening audience, let me I'll back up here, but basically uh, data is written to cells and cells are aggregated together in what's called a page. You can write to any empty cell, but you can only erase an entire page. So as data ages and you need to regain free space, and all SSDs complete this process called garbage collection. It takes the remaining data uh, in, in a page, the data in those cells, it moves it and rewrites it somewhere else, and then it takes that cell and, and zeroes it out so that new data can be written there. When we go through that process, we actually compress the data a second time and actually drive the, the storage footprint down even further. But that, that cell writing would also depend on if you're using MLC or SLC, right? Uh, well, we're all MLC. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So it's, um, it's you know, there's kind of a, we spent a lot there focusing on, on the, the data reduction technologies, but there's, there's a critical element to this, which is, we provide all flash for the price of disk, and that's how we make it happen. We average globally six to one data reduction across all of our, our customer base. Now that varies by application, more like three or four to one for a database, five to one to nine to one for a virtual infrastructure, and greater than 10 to one when you're doing something with lots of clones like VDI or SAP. Um, but when you can take the economics out of the equation and basically offer all flash for the price of spinning disk, that becomes pretty compelling because Flash provides you consistent performance from storage that you've never had before. I know a lot of people focus on Flash in terms of like performance, like, hey, it's, it's uber fast, it's hundreds of thousands of IOPS, and yes, that's true, but what it really provides for you is that spike. I mean, think of the virtual infrastructure, right, or think of cloud computing. You don't control what's going on in the virtual machine anymore. The admin could, could repartition the file system to whatever block size he wants, he could change his I.O. and his app, he could run a batch job, you have no control anymore of what's going on in that VM. And your infrastructure has to be resilient to that, right? So if you get too much CPU being requested, right, vMotion will move that CPU load around. Same with if you have memory constraints. But if it was storage, you had to copy the data because you ran out of I.O. Flash gives you this, this layer in storage now that even when this unexpected burst in workload comes, the storage array just responds. It's 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 that game changing in terms of you shouldn't think about it about speeds and fees. You should think about it about turning off the, you know the the reactive data management fire alarms that go off in a data center. Fire alarms probably a bad bad analogy there. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a couple of moments where he wanted a fire alarm in his data center. So. Oh, you do, I, I, yeah. I, <laughs> but I, mean, I don't like, know. If any, I don't know if anyone's ever experienced a fire in a data center. Not a fun thing, particularly with elements like Halon. Yeah, sure did, but it was with water uh, instead lucky. of Halon. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but the thing, thing is, you, you still have to traverse the HBA over a fiber channel or Ethernet connection and write it to the storage array. Correct. But you're, ta but you're talking, what, 50 microseconds? I mean, you know, there's a conversation of late around, yeah. you, know, um, uh, you know, move your storage closer to the compute. This is better. And, and exactly. you know, that, it's, it's that, on the PCI bus. And yeah, that, that's the discussion I wanted to get back to because that's where we started discussing this. Yeah, and, and, so, and so let's look at the, the architectures that are, that are in the market. So uh, let's take vSAN, for example. 
I think vSAN offers a ton of potential um, to really be a disruptive force in the market. Um, but vSAN does not guarantee that the server that's running the, the compute and servers or the, the compute side, let's say, of the VM is the same host that has the data on it. So no. there is no guarantee that you're not traversing the backend network, one. Two, it is a hybrid array between SSD and slow SATA drives. So Little's Law kicks in there very hard, which is, you know, if you ask any storage vendor, the reason storage caches have grown in every model of their platform in the last 15 years is, is if you can keep the working set in cache, it's good, but you know what? You always outgrow the cache. So Little's Law will affect that model, and the minute that you hit 20 or 30 millisecond spinning disk, it doesn't matter if you're on the PCIe bus. You know, you're talking orders of magnitude in terms of the latency difference. Um, how are you calculating that you're getting 20 milliseconds from the disk? Is it is it is it really busy disk? Is there not enough uh, not enough not enough spindles there? You know. Uh, well, well, you know, most disks are rated for it for an average seek time. So if you're looking at and and we'll stay on vSAN specifically, you know, I think most people are are talking about SATA as the persistent tier, but it still could be SAS, and so maybe it goes to 15 milliseconds. Um, you know, understand that on a rotating disk, you know, over 90% of its time is is uh, is aligning to retrieve the data, not actually sending the data. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. It, it, think of it this way: you'd have a significantly different vSAN experience if you could do it with all flash. The challenge with that is, you know, the minimum con configuration is a doubling of your storage capacity, and a recommended is a tripling. And so, in that scenario, you know, now economics come back into play, which is. Even if I'm just doing the hybrid disk and flash model, you know, that's a lot of hardware. And take the speeds and feeds out of it, where are you going to put it in your data center? I mean, we are seeing, you know, globally, data centers running out of resources, including, you know, power, cooling, and rack space. So there's got to be a trend somewhere where storage starts to, to, to shrink the footprint and the power requirements of storage. And that's a very unique proposition because flash is the only technology that's available in mass today that can solve that challenge. I mean, right, the, the, the size of a 128-gig flash NAND chip is the size of my thumbnail. Yeah, there's a, you can do a lot of, in, a, in a small space with that. So, But I, I, I would think that providing both data, data locality as well as bringing the storage uh, as close to the uh, CPU bus, basically, as possible would inevitably give the best results but then again if 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 you're at the end writing to a, a spinning disk anyway uh you're kind of negating that well well remember remember how they you're not speeding up the whole system yes if you're putting the 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 storage right you know right on top of the cpu it doesn't matter if it's slow storage anyway right. at some point in that link then you're not you're only accelerating part of the process you're not accelerating the whole chain yeah, you're, you're, you're reducing the time of transfer from device to the CPU. Um, you're not you're not speeding up the device, so you still have the same problem. And and remember, your writes go to a local copy and a remote copy, so you're not transferring data at the speed of the local bus. You have to go across the network for all your writes. Yeah. What about um, do you have and do you recommend to people to use also your arrays for backups as well, since you're deduped and stuff like that? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. So we've been able to to do something really unique in the market with the data reduction and take the the economic equation out of flash, but it's not for everything. Um, we are basically targeting um, the market where you'd have what I will call tier one storage devices. Um, this is you know populated by EMC, HDS, three uh, par, and say NetApp. Um, this is be, would be any type of application or virtual machine type of focused architecture. Uh, the, the economics aren't there for Flash today to do what I would call Tier 2, like NAS or Backup. Um, but I think in time, uh, as you look at the investments that are being put, uh, the investments that are being made globally in raising, in in raising the fabrication rate of NAND, that will help drive down the cost as well as NAND densities just continue to increase. So I think, you know, we're three to five years out for that tier two to become flash enabled, and that could be pretty exciting. Um, that, that said, backup isn't always tier two. I mean, if you look at 
Um, my, my, my turn to, for a slight, slight shameless plug, if you look at sort of some of the, the Veeam backup uh, architectures, where you have a, a primary backup tier, which is designed to hold two or three days' uh, retention points before that then goes off to a slower archive tier. Something like a pure device would be quite good for that, because we really hit the disk hard. Um, it's a very, very IO-intensive process when we're doing sort of reverse incrementals, things like that. So it would potentially be quite a good workload, but I'd be interested to see how the compression works at the hardware level as well as the, the software compression that we would use natively within the product. You know, that's a very that's a very interesting use case, and I didn't think about that. Um, I know our companies have had conversations um, because Veeam has a great partner ecosystem around providing APIs to integrate with, with storage uh, devices, uh, but uh, I don't know where the conversation is going to look at it from a backup target perspective and whether the economics make sense. Um, there's another area too, which is you know when you get an all flash, remember that um, you know there's some workloads that that flash devices like ours aren't aren't ideal. Uh, if you've got something that's massively intensive in terms of writes, like for example, we just saw a customer recently who had um, an application that basically batched up its I.O. and then would do these bursts and when it would burst it would burst in terms of thousands of outstanding I.O. and they were saying well look you know my, my, my big iron you know storage array you know could handle all this and you know your all flash array isn't, isn't is going as fast what's going on here and what we had to explain to them was you've put so much cash into this this behemoth that you have you know you'd be better off just buying like a uh, you know a, a, a RAM disk because you know you're just trying to ingest this this I/O burst that comes out, and you could buy a RAM disk for a lot less than your old classic spinning array. So, um, you know, like anything, you know, uh, tier one market we fit in there very well. There's always going to be some edge case of what you will call uh, unique I/O patterns that that are probably addressed by other devices um, in a more cost-effective manner. Do you do replication stuff as well, or can replicate between? Uh arrays in different sites or is that not something you do currently yeah so so we we are uh we are on our third generation of operating system and our fourth is targeted for a launch event in may and i will share here which is i can't share everything in the launch event but probably the the worst kept secret is that we are in currently in beta with our replication software uh, and the, the beta it, we're targeted to come out of beta with the version 4.0 release with at the launch event in May, um, what's kind of unique about Pure, uh, there's a couple of elements, but one of the things that's unique about us is we don't charge for software. Every, every array is fully inclusive, so you can you can access um, over Fiber Channel or iSCSI. You can have your snapshots and your clones. You can have all your vStorage plugins or your um, OpenStack uh, Cinder drivers, for example, and as we come out with new features such as replication, there's never a cost to customers. As long as you have an active support contract, you download the new code and you get the new features. Um, we've also done some really cool elements around trying to make just the, the management lifecycle of storage unique. We've released a program called Forever Flash, which says um, anytime that you upgrade a hardware component, you add a new disk shelf or a shelf of SSD, I should say, or you upgrade the controllers, uh, that new piece of hardware comes in with a three-year maintenance contract. We're going to take all the old hardware and reset their their maintenance contract to the new piece of hardware. So you only ever have to manage the maintenance contract for the entire system, never on a per-component basis. Um, we've also um, uh, gone forward and said if for some reason you don't want to upgrade your system, you just want to extend the maintenance, then we'll go ahead and give you new controllers at the time of upgrade. And the purpose for that is that you know we're always innovating at the software stack, and we want to make sure that you can leverage our features. So if you have an old array that you're not adding any more capacity to you kind of just you know it runs some application well we're going to take care of doing the controller upgrade for you so that you can leverage the new feature set um, what I should say is that the arrays are um, designed to be completely non-disruptive in every form of operation so whether you're doing a hardware upgrade or expansion or a software upgrade um, not only can you do that without disrupting the business you can do it without disrupting performance and basically, the secret sauce behind that is we run at fifty percent maximum capacity on the CPUs. And uh, speaking about uh, <clears throat> non-disruptive and all that, what kind yeah. of uh, what you have to be using some kind of RAID algorithm at the back? Ah, yeah. So we have the, we have a technology called RAID three D, and so it's it's you know when you deal with flash, it's different than with spinning disk. With spinning disk, you'll allocate 
you know, certain functions of disks and spares and all this jazz. And we don't have any concept of spare or root volume or system volume or, or even RAID. So RAID 3D is an adaptive 3D or an adaptive data protection architecture. It's, it says, by default, I will always make two parity bits of any data set. But if there's a set of data that's highly reduced, either highly compressed or highly deduplicated, we'll go ahead and make additional nth parity bits dynamically because we understand that the external reliance on that range of data is high and thus requires better data protection. It also means that if you pull a drive, like pull an SSD drive, um, what happens is, is we don't sit there and go into a degraded state. We look at that as a reduction of storage capacity, and we start be rebuilding um, the data and the RAID, uh, the missing RAID bits uh, from that SSD, and rewrite it to the free space or the extra capacity that's in the in the system. This also means that we're able to prioritize and look at which data has the least amount of data protection, and we start reprotecting that data first. So it's it's pretty it's a pretty cool and more logical element than I think that the kind of the physical constructs of, of RAID five or six, you know that we that a lot of us may be used to in the past. This whole ad, ad, adaptive element actually works really well for us um, as well. We talked about it a bit on the um, data reduction side, but we also do it on the in terms of the I/O size, which is something that maybe some of your listeners don't know. You know, uh, we get in these bake-ups all the time with other flash arrays and. Uh, a number of them use a 4K block size. Well, that 4K block size is um, optimal for applications that run at 4K, but if you get into some type of, say, a database or an application that's running at 8K or 32K, whatever it may be, um, we have an adaptive block size, so we just natively ad adjust to that block size and bring the data in. But if you have a, a storage system that has a, a fixed block size, what you actually have to do is break down that 8K block into two 4K blocks in your DRAM, um, you've got to check some both, do your duplication across those, and then acknowledge back to the host that you've accepted that 8K packet because you're, um, and again, that, that, that deconstruction element on the backside is because they have to break it down into 4K uh, chunks for their, their storage system. So there's been times where, um, you know, we have customers, particularly with the Oracle databases, where 8K is the default block size. You know, we uh, um, have done extremely well versus other systems that have higher um, published performance ratings than, than what we have. Storage tends to be this black <laughs> this black <laughs> art that not everyone <laughs> understands really well. And I would say, um, you know, there's a lot of engineering that goes involved to try to make it simple so it just works out of the box. Um, uh, there's There's been, uh, I've been in the storage industry now for 14 years and it's always surprised me um, uh, how misunderstood storage can be. Uh, by many, and um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it is what it is. <laughs> oh, it's there. There's so, so many nuances, um, yeah, and components and possibilities, and, and 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 small little print stuff that you can read, and it's 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 really hard to get a grip on everything that goes on in storage, and now so even more than ever, I guess, because things are changing so fast that it's. I don't know. There, there, there are new things coming out all the time. You have the flash cache stuff. You have the vSAN. You have you guys. You have the converged solutions. You have yep. whatever happens, and and all of a sudden you've got all these choices. Instead of buying uh, a, a rack full of spinning disk, you have all these option options available to you, and it's really, really hard to figure out what suits what environment. Oh, yeah, and it's not just that. I mean, not only are you sizing anymore, but I mean, even the vSAN element, for example, is it's it's kind of like build your own. So yeah. what's your cache to disk ratio and how many, you know, how many group, you know, disk groups should you have in a server? I mean, just there's a lot to consider there and there's going to be lessons that are learned. I think personally, I think vSAN is going to disrupt the market in some really unique ways. For example, you know, if I'm a small business and everything's virtualized, why wouldn't I? You know, if I'm a if I'm a there, remote facility, a, why wouldn't I? There's a really good reason why you wouldn't, and that's pricing right now. But that's a different thing. So, uh, um, just a quick question: <laughs> You guys are deduplicating and uh, undeduplicating serially via the NVRAM, right? Anytime a request is made, so a request is made to your array for a read. Yeah. That that is compressed and uh, deduped. 
Yep. It's going to go into the NVRAM on dedupe and be served to the uh, served to the host, right? Well, well, NV NVRAM is used for for hosts that are writes. Reads just go into system cache, and so understand that there is no from a storage perspective, there is no concept of of unduplication. You you know when you when you are accessing a file on storage medium, you have something that says this file is. Com- of these blocks, just go get these blocks. Whether that block is referenced to one file or many files, it really doesn't matter. So whether data is deduplicated or not on, on, on any form of storage medium, that doesn't matter. Compression well, matters because you have to inflate. Yeah, right? it has to reach out and grab all those blocks. So like, it, would, you, would there be, like say I was doing something like 500,000 IOs to the system, and you wouldn't see via the system cache any filling up and dumping or anything like that. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I would say that you know while our marketing numbers are, are four hundred thousand IOPS um, for for our device. Probably a more more inline and realistic real world um, expectation for a, a common virtual infrastructure should be around two hundred and fifty. That's that's probably more real world between reads and writes and variable block, block sizes. sizes. Whoa, there was a yeah, it was in a weird echo for a moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah on so. the last show, not sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're, we offer. Let me let me rephrase it to you a, 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 a different way on the question that you bring up. We have a program called Love Your Storage. It's a guarantee program, which it basically says, from the day that you receive the box, you have thirty days. And if for any reason there's no T's or C's outside of the box has to be operational, if for any reason you don't like it, we don't provide the performance we said, we don't provide the data reduction we said, just send it back and we'll refund your money. Um, I wrote a blog post back in 2009 when I was at NetApp saying that the world of virtualization meant that that customers were no longer bound to any hardware vendor. And if they couldn't, that I wouldn't buy any storage without a 60-day guarantee so that I could prove what the, the sales team's claims were. And I took a little bit of heat for writing that. Um, but now I work at a company that actually delivers that. Um, and that should put a lot of confidence in, in, in any prospective customer around we stand behind our product. It's literally, we haven't had one come back yet. Um, but we literally, and we've, I don't know if I mentioned, we've shipped over our 1,000 systems already. It's, it's just a great... I think stake putting a stake in the ground in terms of, of what um, where our marketing claims are relative to the capabilities of the product. But you know, to your point, if you need five hundred thousand apps, you probably should buy two of them. <laughs> so it's it's like is it a scale out kind of a deal where you you can just add there's heads in every box and they yeah, all so kind to, of converge. So, so today it's a scale up architecture. Um, you know, scale out is nice from a perspective of you can forecast nice linear costs around scaling, but you know, m- most data sets aren't hot uh, from a storage perspective. Um, you know, you always get your outliers. That's what blows up your cache. That's why it's nice to have it on, on solid state. But you know, entire data sets aren't hot. Scaling, I think, CPU linearly with capacity um, is an expensive way to scale. Now we are working on. Um, scale out models that are going to be more in the way of scale out management uh, and, and logical scale out than um, the actual um, hardware based scale out because there's an, again a lot of overhead and a lot of cost that's associated with that and one of our you know top three um, I, I think goals if you will is to really help usher out spinning disk out of the data center and the way that we're doing that is by Providing a highly performant and high rely- highly reliable all flash based array, um, but again, you know, don't don't say don't don't say never say never on any type of architecture or technology roadmap. These are just you know the statements that we've made in public that I can share with you at this time. Okay, just just I was just curious how these these heads communicate with each other in the back end if you're if you're yeah. scaling up like that. Yeah, so so the the heads can communicate to one another uh, via InfiniBand. Um, and then there's um, six gigabit uh, SAS links that go from the controllers down to the shelves in a, in a redundant fashion. So kind of very classic storage architecture from a hardware perspective um, in terms of how you would scale out by adding additional shelves and sliding in more uh, flash to grow your capacity. 
Um, what's been really cool is, and I share with you, we have this non-disruptive architecture that even on our guarantee, we guarantee performance, uh, the 100% performance with a controller head down as well as multiple SSDs removed. Uh, there's been customers who have leveraged Twitter to share their upgrade experiences. They went from the 300 series of controllers to the 400 series. You know, and they, they post these pictures showing their performance charts never taking a dip, and you know, one controller has a different <laughs> different physical model than the other. Um, you know, we're able to do that because we basically built a stateless storage architecture. From a controller perspective, it's basically just CPU memory and I/O ports. You know, we really get to ride the Intel curve and and and, and take the gains that Intel provides and pass it along to our customers. Okay, so we spend a lot on storage. There's been more going on in the industry. Yeah, well, and. Um Speaking of upgrades, uh, Christian, you were saying uh, earlier on our sort of pre-show chat that uh, you've been having some fun and games with uh, with upgrades. Uh, yeah, well, we we, we kind of touched on this on the last last episode, uh, basically. But I did on the evening, the same same evening, Norwegian time that uh, Vsphere. Uh, oh, yeah, Vsphere five dot five update one came out. The bits were available for download. I, I upgraded a live production environment, which went perfectly until this kind of third-party uh, flash acceleration product, which is which isn't Pernix data, entered the mix basically. Um, so the upgrade itself went perfectly. It was an upgrade from five dot one to five five update one. Just no one problem. question. Did you check the ACL before you upgraded? Yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's all. <laughs> For everything, uh, <laughs> including uh, the nodes this was running on. And everything was fine. There was a new version of the appliance for this flash acceleration stuff. Uh, so basically what we did was we deployed a new uh, appliance for managing and then restored a backup from the existing running one on to that new version, which then was supposed to install a bunch of drivers on the on the hosts. And pretty much that upgrade just failed miserably. Uh, which and ended up with me having a seven hour cozy little chat with uh, the support organization for via Webex. Uh, and we got it pretty much, not perfectly, we got it pretty much running at 6 a.m. in the morning, and uh, I, I, I started work at 5 p.m. the day before, uh, and three of those hours were basically the VSware upgrade, which went fine, and then the, I, I, screw it, I'll just say it, there was a Fusion IO, IOSphere upgrade that went horribly <laughs> wrong, and no one, knew, no one, including support, knew why. Um... And to be honest, the Fusion IO stuff is, the hardware is great. It works perfectly. It's fine. But the Iosphere appliance that you use to manage this stuff, that's an interesting beast. So it, it kind of ties into the, the things we talked about earlier about adding more and more complexity to the virtualization layer where you... We kind of wanted to virtualize things to make things easier in a way, and now we're kind of adding a lot of bunch of stuff to it that makes it harder to manage and harder to upgrade. Yeah. So uh, that, that's actually a really good point you make. So there's 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 two elements. One is I think could be characterized as saying I'm I'm adding these third party features into my environment, and does it provide, or does it I should say does it detract from the availability of the environment, which is mm. a question. Um, the other element is 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 the ecosystem is becoming more complex. Um, and some of the complexity, I think, is some, some let's say, back-end elements to try to drive more front-end simplicity. So, for example, vCloud Director was never the most simple uh, application to install and get operating in your environment. But once operated, it made the front-end access to resources on demand very simple. Um, I think when you look into my domain that I focus on in storage, there's been a ton of storage um, enhancements in the virtualization space, and 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 it's it's a complex puddle of mud right now, and and I think you're right. There's a need to reverse this train and get to simplicity if we want these architectures to scale. So, well, we got it working um, eventually, but it, it it and everything was supposed to be supported on that version as well. So 
basically it should have been fine. But what we ended up doing was was redeploying the Iosphere uh, appliance and then kind of getting host-based caching back on. Uh, Guest-based caching still doesn't work, but that's a different matter. But it, it, things like these are no, are no fun. Uh, and hopefully there, is, there, wasn't, there wasn't any I.O. waiting to go to the array uh, that was somehow dropped. No, no, no. Uh, we uh, basically that that cluster that had the fusion IO drives in it that was shut down before we started doing anything. I didn't want anything going through the cache cards while we were upgrading it, so that was pretty much uh, vacated while we did the upgrades. How does how does IOSphere differ from let's say like IO Turbine? Uh, IOSphere is basically the appliance that manages it. Okay. So uh, it's it's kind of it, the IO drive is a drive, and the IO turbine is kind of the software driver stuff that works on it. And then you have the IOSphere appliance, but that's also something that's a bit of a problem with Fusion IO. To be honest, it's the complexity of the interconnects between their own software. Uh, trying to keep keep track of which driver versions fit with which appliance and which drives is really really hard. And it, they're not making it easier for themselves by re- naming them slightly different versions. I mean, I, I was supposed to install Iosphere version 3.7, which I found the that was the appliance version, which was, I guess, a part of IO Turbine or whatever 2.3, which had some kernel drivers for named 107. It's a mess. <laughs> it, it's really hard to keep track of. So, for just for the basic things, keep a, a consistent numbering plan and, and group drivers and versions and appliances together so you know which one fits where. It's, I, I was kind of frustrated after seven hours on WebEx. <laughs> yeah, seven hours is, is, is not usually the amount of time I would spend on support. Maybe after no. three hours, I would give up and try to start figuring out myself. But oh, I did that at the same time. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I probably now know why guest-based caching doesn't work, but fusion art support still doesn't. But I would rather spend eight hours on a bus than seven hours with Webex support or on Webex for with the support organization. To be honest, but well, at least you didn't lose consciousness and nobody vomited during that, that support call. <laughs> I haven't gotten to that part yet. <laughs> I, I don't think anyone's ever knowingly been sick on a support call, but I, I will check with our, our director of support just in case. <laughs> and there was no threats about being bitten, so no, <laughs> had that in your favor. Yeah, well, I had a customer with me. I think it was pretty close, but <laughs> support if I, if I was on your VCP almost expired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What if your VCP had expired? What if they thought you were the problem? Yeah, well, I'm not certified on 5.5, so I guess the emotional scars alone would kill me. I think there's a red flag right there. <laughs> yeah, probably. I'm, ju- I'm just another VCP drama queen, I guess. Speaking of VCP ex- expiration, that was, that was some recent news as well. Yeah. Yeah, I've, there's, there's certainly been some, I think, what you could call mixed responses on Twitter. <laughs> um, so, some people are quite ambivalent to it, and some some people are, are kind of absolutely spitting blood, not so happy about it. Um, I, I suppose I've got to kind of sit on the fence a bit because, yeah, it's it's a bit frustrating that they um, are you lose the the certification rather than it sort of being retired and adhered to a a particular version. You know, I know they're saying that Cisco and other people don't, but Microsoft don't actually retire that. They retire the exams, but they don't retire the certification. You know, if you are a, a Windows P MCSE, it's yeah, kind but of you can, history. You can still call yourself a VCP three, Chris. No problem. It's mm. just that you just you can't have the logo. You you just can't, can't say VCP. VCP. You won't have access to the VCP portal. Yeah, and your certification will be on your transcript listed as expired. I mean, it That's makes it. sense. It makes sense to me. Do you want a guy uh, going in working on a customer that's a VCP one and claiming to be a VCP without actually giving a number? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, that's fair enough. Uh, no, I, 
Look at the rate of change within the industry as a whole, right? We kind of touched based on this a little bit around storage, but through the whole stack, mm-hmm. the, 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 the rate at which innovation is occurring in the IT space is rampant. I think putting a, a, putting a limiter in place for the certification program so that, that customers can be assured of the quality of the technicians coming in or engineers or architects, whatever the term you want to use um, – it's probably a good thing because you know what you knew yesterday, and, and I hear this all the time, right? The old sand NAS debate, you know, that that you know uh, storage for VMware, right? People are like, how could you go to sand? And NAS was great. It's like those times have moved on. I mean, the, the industry moves, and so having your certifications up to date ensures that that you know you're someone who stays in step uh, yeah. with these advancements. And to be honest, having a, a, a fixed two-year validity period for a certification like that. Makes it a lot easier, specifically for the VCP, uh, to keep track on when you need to upgrade it. Because, assuming there's a new exam every two years. Yeah, sure. Uh, that's kind of the minimum. Uh, there has to be a new version to to uh, to upgrade to, or you're you're gonna chew your own leg off at some point. I mean, if you have to retake the same exam, then that would be something to get angry about. Yeah, yeah but because they seem to be saying, well, you know, if two years comes round and uh, you're about to expire, well, why don't you go and do like a VCP cloud or a VCP desktop? And mm-hmm. well, that's like saying, so you've done a history degree, but you know, it's getting a bit tired. Why don't you go off and do like physics? No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a fucking historian. Go and have a history degree. Uh, well, there is that point, of course, but the thing is, until now. We didn't really know when we have to upgrade until, of course, we knew because we had the beta, all of us. But no, we kind of didn't know until there was a new version out, the course was available, and then you got six months. That's it. If you do not upgrade within that six-month grace period, you would have to retake the class to retake the exam. You don't have to do the full class. You can, you can do the what's you can new. You can do the uh, what's new thing. Yeah. But you would, it would still require you to spend a, a day or two or three in a classroom. Not to mention your employer's money or your own. Exactly. And but, now, but you you know, know. now you but know. Now you know. You have a date. But you know what, Christian? If you were to sit back and not update your certifications... Maybe you could wait for another like Y2K event where you're like the only guy around <laughs> who's like stayed tried and true on your VI3, and then there's a bunch of these customers that never moved anywhere, and when they call, you're the only one who knows it anymore because everyone else has moved on. Yeah, exactly. I, there, there, I, I wrote a blog post about this where I basically just tried to tell everyone that this is a good thing because I generally think that it's a good thing that they do this. And... I think that post now has 65 comments or something. Oh. And I got into a really kind of weird argument with this Russian guy. Uh, but, but no one comments on blog posts anymore, surely. No, it's, wait a minute, it's wait a minute. years since I had a good comment war going on. It was fun. It's not possible to not have a weird argument with a Russian guy. Yeah. <laughs> you should tell that to Chris, who works for V. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just log on to my email. Every day. It's like Groundhog's Day. Yeah. The thing is, he, he was claiming that. Well, I have my 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 employer never wants to upgrade from vSphere four, and so I should keep my vCP four because that's the version we're running. And if I lose my vCP, they'll they'll fire me. And I, I just said that. Well, your biggest problem as a company won't be that you have a, a vCP retirement policy. It's going to be hardware that supports that version the next time you need to buy something. And that's a bigger issue <laughs> than having someone lose their uh, certification. So I'm, I made that VCP Drama Queen logo and just basically told everyone <laughs> that. Uh, it's all fun and games until someone loses a certification. Uh, and it, it's been interesting to look at the emotional res, uh, responses to to uh, the announcement from VMware. I, I don't get it, honestly. I don't. A lot of the emotional response is just the, like um, the YouTube comment scenario. People don't <laughs> understand it fully, and they come in like, oh, like a, like uh, I don't know, like the Hulk hitting through a brick wall. Like they, <laughs> they just like they're, they're they just don't like it. They're gonna say it. VCP smash. <laughs> <laughs> 
I would like to state at this point, you know, my new certification of the VMware Certified Unified Networking Technician uh, yeah. will not be expiring. Uh, it's no. once once you are a Certified Unified Networking Technician, you're always a Certified Unified Networking Technician. We need to make that logo. <laughs> I'll let you do that one. Yeah, I guess. I'm guessing you would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. But bottom line, the, the, the problem is understanding fully the concept. Yeah, it's a bit like storage, I guess. Yeah, but... <laughs> I mean, look at... Look, yeah, and like, we go full circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so guys, we put a good hour in here. Let's, uh, let's wrap up. Yep. Thanks a lot for listening to vsoup 44 and thanks a lot to Vaughn Stewart for being on. Hey, guys, thanks for having me on. I, I, I know I can talk a little bit once you get me wound up, but uh, this is great. I love the podcast. Keep going. Yeah, thanks, thanks. a lot. And um, if you want to, catch us on vsoup.net, Stitcher, or iTunes. Thanks.